We are in the book of Colossians chapter 1. Um, we have three verses to go through this morning. They're so profound and powerful, it would be silly to rush through anything else when there's much, uh, much more than enough for us in these three verses. says this in Colossians chapter 1 starting in verse 21 I'll let you get your Bibles go ahead if you don't have a Bible we have some special ones that are called holy ones over there holy Bibles yeah that's important um, go ahead and get yourself one right in the bookshelf make yourself at home that way we did see a really uh, nice little um, little refrigerator magnet that said make yourself at home go ahead and clean my kitchen but that's not what we mean by that <coughs> verse 21 Colossians alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You pray with me, please. I pray, Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit, the very author of this book, to not just simply infect me, but to overtake me. I pray, Lord, that you would immerse me, that I would disappear and fill me to overflowing that I would have your power to accomplish your will, your way. That you would bring hope and encouragement through this message. That you would bring clarity, application. And Lord, I thank you for what you've already shown me. And I pray, Lord, now that you would make this time profound every minute of there would be no second wasted. So have your way now, I pray. Thank you, Lord. It's your time. Be glorified in it, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. In this particular text, I remind you, Paul is writing to a church he hasn't met personally. He has quite a bit of influence because, after all, he is Paul. He, it is now Paul is in prison in Rome which means that the majority of his public ministry, or at least what we have as recorded public ministry in the book of Acts, is going to be done. Um, we end the book of Acts with, we read Paul being in a home, in a house, uh, being imprisoned there. Kind of like grounded is the idea. And uh, that's where Paul is, and he'll be there for two years, roughly 60 to 62 AD. He'll be released again, and then... Uh, be caught again by Nero in 67 AD, where he will be promptly beheaded. By the way, don't just believe any of the information I give you. Search it out on your own. Make sure that you always hold it to the scriptures. That's the most important thing. And uh, from that, gauge it to be right or wrong. So we're, in the, we're now at the end of Paul's ministry. I mean, he uh, got saved roughly in about, or encountered Jesus Christ, and therefore was uh, converted roughly about 34 AD. And so, if you think about it, this has been quite a trip. It's been 26 years that he has walked with the Lord. And, and Paul's ministry has been just that long. 
Um, again, he'll only have a few more years. He'll be during this time. He'll write the majority of the letters we would call the prison letters. Would be during these two years. Upon his release, there's conjecture about whatever happened to Paul, whether he wound up going to Spain or not. Um, nothing is ever very clear in regards to that. It's all tradition at that point. Um, but his execution is well recorded. Uh, during this time, again, Paul has been made notified that there is this church that has arisen, actually a handful of churches, uh, those in the Lycus Valley. Uh, that is this area where, again, there were, was a hot spring, so there was sort of a spa resort area. Uh, we would call Hierapolis the city of the priests. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll try not to do that too much. There was an area there of great shopping, and there was an area there of uh, the banking area. And those were the areas of Laodicea and Colossae. And in that area, he hears that a church has arisen. And from what he hears of the church, it seems to be a pretty solid church. It is a church that is displaying its faith through love. And again, I remind you, love is selflessness. It's you before me. And he's displaying this. Uh, he's aware of, he's being made aware of that. And this hope that they have that motivates them. And hope becomes a real predominant point in this whole first chapter. Now, in other words, what Paul is giving them is he's writing this very short four-chapter letter to a church just to make sure that they're on the same page about who this Jesus is. And, and it's beautiful that he just wants to make sure that this church is just proper. It's the right church. And there's a lot of areas, again, he doesn't cover because they're really not the fundamental areas. And what a beautiful book to start with for us. Because what we really want is a church that God would smile upon. We want a church that focuses on the things God focuses on, and for the, for the most part, doesn't give a lot of credence to the things that the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time on. And, and with that in mind, we remember that Paul spent a lot of time really making sure that we had the right Jesus. That was the whole fundament last time. Was that, okay, you say you believe in Jesus. Oh, thank you, Toby. Um, you say you believe in Jesus, but do you believe in the right Jesus? And... Um, that's the whole point. And so he just really went line by line just to make really clear who this Jesus was. Oh, thank you so much. Awesome. This week, Paul really just wants to make sure our relationship with him is proper. And notice in these three short verses, there is this focus on time. There is this, if you will, the weakness of our past the wonder of our present, and then the warning of our future, all laid out in these three verses. And again, as Paul were writing it to us just the same way that Paul were writing it to the Colossians, the church is here, we've got a new church, this a wonderful thing is happening, God is bringing the gospel out to human beings, people are responding to that gospel, the Lord is starting to draw in people, and, he just, and, and Paul just as a pastor just really wants to make sure that our church is proper, that it is just a church that God would smile upon, that it passes God's checklist, not man's checklist or a business checklist, but that the boxes are ticked in regards to the heart of God. Now, look at it again with me, starting again in verse 21. It says, you were once. That's where this starts. And then it says at the end of verse 21, and yet now. So there is our past and the weakness of our past and our relationship to the Lord in regards to our past. And then yet now, this is what has happened as a result of that. And then it says in verse 23, if indeed you continue, and that moves us now towards the future. Now, <coughs> first point then in verse 21, he tells us that we were in essence two simple things before we came to Jesus or before we were in essence ravished by his love. The first thing it says is we were alienated. Now, the term for what it's worth, apolatriaho is the term in the Greek. It means in simple sense to be a non-participant, to be an outsider. And what we were before we came to Jesus were outsiders. But we were also, notice in verse 21, enemies. And the word comes from a root word which simply means, and the word echto means, echto means to hate. We were haters. And that was the whole point of this. Now, this is really fundamental because what this tells us is, is that we were, in a simplest sense, very, very un... Well, we, we, were not, we were the complete opposite of any decent candidate for Jesus' salvation, if it were by anything we could have earned. And that is really, really important. 
Because we enter into this thing, our relationship with the Lord, humbly and with great gratitude because we know we don't deserve any of this. And that becomes the problem in a church today. And Paul wants to make sure that the church is founded on a group of people that recognize we only get salvation because God is love, not because in any way we deserve it. And also, we didn't just need God's help. We don't need God to help us. God has to do it because we are just not that close. It wasn't like somehow in it we actually had the sort of paper money to lay down, but we just needed the change to fill the bill. The bottom line was we owed a debt we could not pay by any means, and Jesus therefore paid a debt he didn't owe. In this, it tells us that we were alienated. Now think for a moment of the last time you felt alienated. You felt on the outside. You were a non-participant. And why it was you were a non-participant. Go back to secondary school for a moment in your head. You remember how it was? Now, whether you were of the popular crowd or you weren't of the popular crowd, there was a very big schism between the two in a public school system. There was a group of people that claimed to be great, and sadly enough, many people believed them because of that. And there were another group of people that claimed that they were cool in another way simply because they knew they couldn't be part of the in crowd, so they just formed their own crowd instead. Hated the other crowd as a result of that and lived at enmity with them, but in truth would have happily joined that crowd if they could have, just didn't think they ever could. Now, in that, what the Bible tells us is we were the group of people, we weren't born in the in crowd. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us nobody is born in the in crowd. Nobody is born with an added advantage because they were better looking or they were smarter or they were more disciplined. And that becomes a real fundamental aspect of our salvation, beloved. Hear me out. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that God rescues, first of all. Muhammad doesn't rescue. Buddha doesn't rescue. Only Jesus rescues. And that becomes one of the stumbling blocks, if not the key stumbling block for the rest of the world. They don't want to think they need to be rescued, and they don't want to be able to admit they need to be rescued, even when they're aware of the fact that they need to be rescued. And that's why it can make us look weak when we come to Christ in their eyes, because they're like, oh, there you go. He's a crutch. Well, he's more than a crutch. A crutch doesn't rescue you. Jesus was my rescue. He was my lifeguard. He was my gurney. He was my emergency room. He was my A&E. He was my surgeon. He was every bit of it. He's my life. He's not just a crutch. A crutch is a help. A crutch is, I can almost walk. This will give me the added a couple percent to get me to where I need to be. Jesus is not my added percent. He's my hundred percent. And if we add Jesus into our life as if somehow he's just a little bit to sort of top off the top, and help me with it, we're really going to be in trouble. And that's the way a lot of the world approaches Jesus today. Like Jesus is just somehow just sort of a little added bonus. He's the sauce on your burger that makes it taste a little bit bigger or better instead of he's everything. But look, at we were outsiders. We were outsiders who didn't belong to be part of this. We have no right to be part of this. And to make it worse, we were enemies. And to be an enemy, we were clearly, op- just in, in the simplest sense, in opposition to a God who wanted us. He created us to be with him. Remember what it said last week. For by him and for him we were created. We were created for Jesus. And though we were created for him, he, we chose instead to actually be his enemy. Notice it says, in our minds by our wicked works. Our very behavior proved that we were his enemies. I remember what it was like when I actually tried out for basketball back in secondary school. I was a long-haired rock and roll kid from the 80s. And I was definitely not one of the just jump into the system kind of guys. I was usually a fight the system kind of guy. That's, I know that seems really strange for you. But they demanded you got your hair cut. And the, and the reason was, is if you went up for a rebound and you came down and some guy was going for the ball, he might have ripped out a chunk of your hair. And I was just determined not to get my hair cut. 
And I remember, and the whole point was, though I had made the basketball team, though I was fine with where I was and all of that, I, will, I would wind up not really playing much. And the reason was because I wouldn't get my hair cut. My very behavior showed I really wasn't a part of the team. Oh, I, it was like, though I had the skills, it really didn't matter. Because whether I had the skills or not, I wasn't part of the team. And now, having coached basketball, I realize now how dangerous such a person is. And the more talent an individual like that has, the more dangerous they are because the more influential they are over the rest of the people you're hoping to make a team out of. In a simplest sense, listen, we're born and raised serving ourselves, making ourselves the most important thing. And even, and we, we live to protect ourselves and fight to keep ourselves so safe. And, and, and when it comes down to it, we are still the most important thing in our lives. And that very behavior just shows when the Lord lives for us to hand our lives over to him so he could protect us and care for us and take care of us. You guys, we'll never hand the Lord our life if we're busy protecting it. We'll never hand the Lord our life if our life is going to be the most important thing. Because if we do, we really won't allow him to protect us and guide us and lead us. Because he'll lead us in the places we'll go, hey, this is a little spooky or crazy or weird or it seems so dark or strange or whatever. And in the end of it all, the Lord goes, but do you trust me? And we will by our own behavior show whether we stand with him or against him. Now, it's easy to toot our own horn and say, well, look at how we left the comforts of where we were to come here. But truth be told, I mean, there gets a point where the Lord will just make you so miserable, you're either going to do his will or just be a nasty, rotten creature for the rest of your life. But beloved, we were all, every one of us, like the rest of the world out there, by our own thinking and behavior, enemies of God. That's where we started. But if God got a hold of us somewhere, could we get a hold of them too? I mean, I truly believe what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where he says, This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full, full faith, or full trust, or full credence, that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So what Paul said was, you know why God saved me? Because I was the worst. So that no one else in the world could say God wouldn't save them. And it's true. I genuinely believe that. I know where I came from. And that's no way of, there's no bragging in that. It's honesty. That when I look at people and I see their, their insanity, beloved, listen. God makes clear. If he can save me and turn me into the person he's making me to be. I can look at any person out there and go, don't tell me that God couldn't do the same for you. Yeah, you're living as an enemy of God. I would expect that. We all were. So it wasn't like Christ did this because he owed us anything. We know this was hell. But he did it because he loves us. How could we ever doubt that? So we were enemies in our own mind by wicked works. And by the way, for what it's worth, a side note, the word wicked, the word and the Greek is the word paneros. The word ra'a is the word of the Hebrew. And both of them are not as if God looks at something and just doesn't like it, and so therefore he deems it wicked. The words wicked and evil are not just words that God just basically arbitrarily decided he didn't like sauerkraut, and so he called it wicked. Or he didn't like ballroom dancing, so he called it wicked. Or he didn't like blue shoes, so he called it wicked. And said, oh, why is it I can't wear blue shoes or eat sauerkraut or go ballroom dancing? I mean, and some people out there look at that and go, well, how come I can't go do this? Or how come I can't do that? Why does God call that wicked? How come he says that lifestyle is wicked? Or how come he says that that behavior is wicked? Or how come he says that this is wicked? As if God were the ultimate party pooper. Truth be told, the word paneras, like ra'a, start with a fundamental word, and the word means to harm. See, anything that God calls wicked, or that God calls evil, he calls simply harmful. That's what the word means. Now, we've taken it in a lot of different directions. The church is just basically, and this becomes a, a dangerous thing for all of us, that we could just say, we could call something wicked because we just don't like it. But truth be told, Excuse me. Truth be told, what God calls wicked is something that hurts you or hurts others. It's just that simple. 
And therefore, God deems it off limits because he doesn't want you hurting yourself and he doesn't want you hurting other people. Now, there are certain things I don't personally like. I'm not a fan of coffee. Don't hate me for it. I'm not going to call it wicked. Now, if you kept trying to serve it to me, I might call you wicked for the moment for doing so because that might be harmful to you. Well, at least I might be harmful to you. But I'm not going to call it wicked because it's just something I don't like. But if you served me something that had a poison in it, I would call that drink wicked because at that point it's harmful to me. If there was a behavior that was harmful to you, I would call it wicked because it's dangerous to you. Now, I'm not just talking about dangerous lifestyle. Like, well, gosh, then it's wicked to go out there and share with that drunk guy because he might hit you. Well, look, it. there's a difference between doing the will of the Lord and just doing something that just flat out hurts you. And the Lord loves you so much, he doesn't want you hurting yourself. He doesn't want you hurting someone else because he loves them too. And the way we use people, the way we overlook people, the way we just basically seek to fortify ourselves, and I'm speaking of my own self, it's just harmful. And he calls it evil. Now, when people say, how dare you say that this particular lifestyle or this particular mindset is wicked? The bottom line is, if it hurts you, God calls it wicked. And he says that your wicked works, literally your harmful behavior, proved you were an enemy to God. Because the one thing that God loves more than anything else is you. And if you're hurting you, then you're being an enemy to God. If there's nothing that God loves more than another person, and you're hurting them then you're proving to be an enemy of God by hurting them. And he says, that's where we started. That was the weakness of our past. The weakness of our past is we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't just pay our debt. We couldn't just crawl out of this hole. But instead, we needed to be reconciled. And that's what it tells us then at the end of verse 21 and verse 22. We move then from the weakness of our past to the wonder of our present. And yet now he has a reconciled. Now, the word reconciled, for what it's worth, simply means to change mutually. To put two people who are at enmity with each other or against each other, now put them together. And this is how badly, this is how big the debt was, and how badly he won it. It says that yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. That is the beginning of the wonder of our present, that God so desperately, so desperately didn't want you his enemy if you pay your bill. And the bill that it cost was for him to be tortured to death. That's how important, that is how important you are to him. When you were his enemy, now think about your enemies for a moment. A person who's made your life downright nasty. Whereas somebody that if they found something important to you, they would do whatever they could to break it. Now think about such a person. I mean, somebody that would go after my kids. Somebody that would go after my wife. Because there's nothing more precious to me on earth than these three. And to think that I would pay their bill, that I would be tortured to death so that they could be reconciled to me, <laughs> that is a wondrous love. And that's exactly the kind of price that had to be paid. And that was exactly the kind of person I've been to God. That's the kind of person you've been to God. I mean, you were killing his kids. You were killing his kids by killing yourself. But here's the most wondrous part of it. It's not only did he pay the price so that he could reconcile you, but the wonder of your present goes beyond that. Notice what it says then in verse 22 to present you. The term present, for what it's worth, palestimi, means to stand beside. Para means beside, like paragraph means beside the writing. And histimi means to stand. So it means to stand beside. When the Lord wants to present you, he wants to actually put you beside himself. So that means he could present you to himself first. And then to everyone else second. Now look at it. It'd be one thing for him to reconcile with you because you were his enemy. And then he'll talk about making peace with your enemies because after all, why in the world would you want to have to fight anyways? And to do whatever you could to possibly live at peace with all men. But it is another thing to not just make peace with your enemy, 
but then to go as far now as to make them right. To holy. Look at the words that he uses, and he gives us three terms here. The term holy, the term blameless, and the term above reproach. This is how far Christ has gone. And Paul wants to make sure this church that he's never met is really clear on where they are with Christ. First of all, you were his enemy. That's where it starts. You weren't just some special little something that <coughs> Jesus didn't really have to die for. Maybe he just had to have a flu for or something. <coughs> Jesus had to be tortured to death for, just like anyone else. And that even in that, that Christ had to do more than just kind of go, oh, let's overlook this this problem that you created, this debt that you ensued. But then he goes, look, at, I'm going to go beyond that now to make you these three things. And the term holy, for what it's worth, hagias, by the way, and this is important, means weird. The word hagias, in its simplest sense, means unique, sacred. Now, the word hagias is not unique, by the way, the term is not unique to the Bible. A term hagias, in its simplest sense, just means something very out of the ordinary for the rest of it. Now that is important because if you're going to give your life to Christ, I don't want to warn you as we look at the next year, because in the next year, I would like to give my life. I realize this, that it's one thing to say, hey, let's just have a church where everyone can get together and we can enjoy each other and we can sing songs to the Lord and we can have our time in the word and go, okay, good. I got my information. Let's it's another thing for me as a pastor to demonstrate what it really means to be fully in pursuit of the Lord, to lose myself and gain Christ. And I realize, I don't even know if I'm doing that for my family. I want to be. But it's one thing to go, okay, well, cool, we're existing. We're not really doing lots of bad things. I mean, we're doing a couple good things here and there. And it's another thing for people to look and say, man, that guy is in love with his Savior, and he doesn't want to be anything but that. And I really can't tell you I'm being that. I want to tell you that. But I also want to be honest. But I recognize that if I'm going to do that, I am going to be flat out weird. And not just flat out weird to the world around me. I'm an American. I'm going to be weird to some. We're in the Camden area. That helps because everybody's weird in Camden. And people say, you really want to be weird in Camden? Just be normal. Okay, well, that'll make us weird too. But we'll be weird to the church. We'll be weird, weird to, a, to a latent almost comic stated existing group of people that are, feel like they're comfortably saved but have no interest in letting the Lord completely ravish them in every area of their thinking and behavior. And when that happens, we're going to be weird to a group of people who are just happy to basically be lawn chairs, to be couch potatoes, to be doorstops. Because man, when you were, I, I mean... In a group of people, when you find a group of people who are even out there performing some sport, there is one thing when you watch the people who are recreational, they're out there, and you can tell by their, by, by their behavior, by sometimes by their body type, whether or not they've really made a, an honest go at this. You know? <clears throat> and then there are others on the other side of it that are genuinely in training. Now, going from playing serious baseball to playing softball is a very radical jump out of the deep fryer into the freezer. It is a very different world. Now, in baseball, at least in high school, there were some people who genuinely believed that they were going to be called to the major leagues. And to be honest, some people you just kind of knew could. Other people you kind of knew, well, bless their heart, let them try anyways. But I tell you what, those people were in training. And to be honest, the, what they ate... What, the way they behaved, when they got up, when they went to sleep, and what they did in between those times all dictated how dedicated they were to that. Then you go to softball. We were in a tournament with a group of people, David and I. And we, were, we had made it all the way to the finals with this team. And somewhere around that time, they decided, let's break out the brews. And all of a sudden, everyone's cracking open beers. Everyone but David and myself. And they're just smacking down their beers. And, and it was amazing because the team that, and, and 
you could tell by some of them they were pretty good athletes. Others, it was great they were out there. Um, but man, once those beers opened up, a whole radically different team turned out because all of a sudden the couple were fighting with each other and a couple other people, the ball would come to them and they wouldn't even go, oh, I, I don't have the energy to go for it anymore. And they just, what, what was that? What, what just happened? And, it was, and of course, there's a part of you that thinks, what are you doing? We're making it to the finals. Is there a part? And then, of course, that's that competitor in me that says, we're this close to doing something. What are you going to do with it? And, 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 and you watch a group of people who are just like, they're obviously there recreationally. And they're like, oh, who cares whether we win or lose? The bottom line of it is, hey, we got to, we got to play more. And, and people were like, are you kidding me? We have to play another game? I mean, sincerely. And David and I were looking at each other going, I, this is such a bizarre world. And we had to look so bizarre to them. Because to be honest, we were like, yippee-skippy, we got another game to play. We're like, wow, and I'm like, I'm like, let's go get a power drink. Let's go get something that kind of gives us some energy, you know? And I'm like, eating like little barley oat things on the side or something. I feel like a horse, but <coughs> I'm gonna, you know, <clears throat> it's raining and we're like praying for the rain to go away. Everyone else is like, oh, good. I hope it keeps raining. We could go home now and get and drink some more at the pub. I'm like, funny. I kind of thought we came here to play softball. And it was weird because in the end of it all, at least on our team, we were very, very different people from the rest of it. And there was obviously the issues of prayer and that we loved the Lord and that kind of thing. But even in the sport itself, we were very different. We were very different because to be honest, we really actually, we were the, I really believe we were the only ones by the end of it that were really enjoying the game. And then there was a part of us that was almost enjoying the game because we were looking around going, this game isn't played well by two people. And I realized, beloved, this is a team. And as a team, there will be people that will come into a church to be recreational Christians. They'll kind of come into it and you can tell by their behavior. You can tell by their lifestyle. You can tell by their choices. They're really not there to win anything. They're kind of there to swing the bat a few times. They're kind of there to look at the ball a few times and go, wow, look at that. Yeah, it's neat. You know? And maybe in the end of it all, hey, if you keep trying hard enough, maybe we can come away with something. <laughs> like, you've got to put on a glove too, Holmes. You know? and, and you realize after a while, there's a whole lot more to it. Because in the end of it all, it doesn't matter how one individual shines or a couple or don't, they're going to look at the team. And the lost world out there looks at the team, team church... And they see a bunch of really fat, slobbery people cracking open a bunch of compromise, slobbering all over themselves, and in the end of it all, having no real value system for the game. And when it comes down to it, and you're like, are you kidding me? We have to go another 25 minutes with this? Are you kidding me? We have to what? I have to serve now? Oh, come on. Can I just let the ball go by? And there's a lot of the church just letting the ball go by, to be honest, because... It's acceptable in the game as long as the rest of the team looks at it. And there's a part of it that looks and goes, you know, you were good. And I actually said it to one of the guys that was an athlete. You were really good last game before that happened. And of course, they're like, oh, there you go. You're one of those Christians with your whole drinking thing. <laughs> Dude, it has nothing to do with that. I drink too, but it's just something different. I'm drinking a power drink. But it involved the game. And in the end of it, I'll listen, beloved. Jesus wants to present us in his death. He presents us holy. Holy to everyone, including him. And understand, holy is unique because we're unique to him. And how sad is it that the father sits down and has a lap open for all of his children, but a very scant few of them will sit there. And that makes them unique too. How sad if we were to have five children, but only two would be the two that would sit on my lap. They would be unique to me because they would be the ones that would want to be intimate with me. Beloved, how about us? The Lord wants so much more than us just to say, hey, got the shirt. Looks like I'm on the team. Who cares if I go to the game or not? But Jesus died. I mean, he was tortured so we could make the team be unique. To be unique. And we're too busy trying to blend in with the world. Because we don't want people to point and laugh. But people will point and laugh at the winning team, too. But I want to be on the winning team. And I've read the end of this book. I'm on the winning team. But I want to be a starter on the winning team. And I want to be a closer on the winning team. And it has nothing to do with being a pastor. It has everything to do with being a Christian. 
It doesn't say he did this for, for pastors. It says he did this for Christians. Second, blameless. <coughs> Amomas. Amomas, unblameable. Pretty simple to call it blameless. I learned this about being blameless. There's only two ways to be blameless. To be innocent. Or just to shirk the blame to someone else. In America, we're really good at making sure we're all victims. It really doesn't matter what it is. We'll find our way to make sure we're a victim of it. You know, how dare you stop in the middle to turn left while I wasn't looking on my cell phone and so forth when I ran right into your car. It's your fault. You, know, you realize the reason I stabbed those five people to death was because my junior high school gym teacher, he told me I never amount to anything. And boy, I proved him wrong today. And it is amazing how quickly we can blame anything and everything else for all of our other things. But to be honest, it doesn't make us blameless. Because there's a part of us inside that has to know we're part of it. And it's like, you know, when you say, hey, you know, stop hitting your sister. But, no but, just stop hitting your sister. You can explain why later. It doesn't matter at this moment. Just stop. But don't say that. Well, I'm saying that because, oh, it doesn't matter why you're saying it first. I'm not being insensitive. Just stop saying that. Then we can talk about why later. The bottom line is, let's just admit wrong is wrong and seek to stop doing it regardless of the reason. Because there are times where we can give ourselves, let's be honest, we can give ourselves license to be nasty people just because we've allowed ourselves to be. It's that time of the month. It's I'm hungry. I'm stressed. Now, those things can cater into it. But the moment you give yourself a license to be, you'll be every time you're tired. You'll be every time you're stressed. And the bottom line is, we are all enemies of God naturally. Who wants to give that guy any license to step in? Jesus died for us so we can no longer have to shirk the blame because he really took our blame upon himself so we could be innocent, blameless. To be without blame means that no matter how hard somebody else tries to blame us, there's nothing, hear me out, the difference is there's nothing to blame. Not there's a decent excuse for it. There's nothing to blame. This is the way it works. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Beloved, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father on our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Now hear me out. I write to you that you so you will not sin, but if you do, we have one who speaks to the Father in your defense, Jesus Christ. He's the righteous, so he is the right to stand before the Father. But it goes better than that. He is the propitiation, the ransom payment for our sins. Jesus is not saying, but Dad, you know it was a bad day for her. But Dad, you know that he was having a tough day. But, you, but Dad, you know that he had the flu. So he had all the right in the world to cuss out his kids. Or, Dad, you know. And by the way, I'm not, this is not confessional. <laughs> this is hypothetical. Um, I, I praise God for the sailor mouth that I had. And I used to cuss in my prayers. God, take this blanket mouth away from me. The day I met my wife, he took it away. Praise the Lord, because if she had heard that mouth, she would have ran away screaming and should have. I'd have been like, hey, what's the blanket problem? God bless you. <laughs> <coughs> but I don't have relapses on that. Praise the Lord for that. You don't hear me cussing out people, even in pretty hairy situations. I'm, I'm praise the Lord for that. I really do praise. But getting back to the point, the Lord wants to present us blameless. But that blameless is not him saying, but you know, James didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Or, well, you know, that food didn't agree with her and she's going to be like that. Or, well, you know, whatever. There's stress going on. Or those bills are coming. And I don't know if we have enough money at the moment. And you know how they're going to behave when that happens. Or you hit that, that, that hammer right on his thumb instead of on the nail. Because the moment we give ourselves license to that, we're still guilty. We're guilty with an excuse. Now, in America, that's what the way they do it. Now, I don't know how they do it here. But if you're going to stand before a judge, he gives you three options. Like if it's a traffic violation, for instance. And it doesn't have a great deal of experience with this, but enough. Are you innocent? Are you declaring yourself not guilty, guilty, or guilty with an explanation? He doesn't say I'm innocent with an explanation. 
is it's either you're innocent, I'm sorry, you're not guilty, guilty, or guilty with an explanation. So understand, even in the court of law, as messed up as it is in California, they still recognize you're guilty even if you think you have a good excuse for it. It isn't like you're innocent because of your good excuse. You're still guilty, but your good excuse may help make the, the judgment a little nicer or less bad. Now understand, we don't have to do that. Because Jesus Christ is, listen, not just our defense attorney, but the payment for our sins. And what that means is that the accuser of the brethren, which the Bible makes very clear is Satan, says, she did, she did, she did, she did, she did, he did, he did, he did. That's what he does. And he stands before the Father and says, let me tell you what Luke did. And unfortunately, with all due respect, not that I know Luke's dirty laundry, but I know, at least with myself, we've given him enough stuff. This is the one area the enemy doesn't have to lie. He doesn't say, remember when Luke robbed that liquor store? <laughs> Unless you did, but I'm unaware of it. Again, we're hypothetical here. But he can, because let's be honest, we give enough sin ammunition for the enemy to accuse. But Jesus doesn't have to say, but Luke was having a bad day. But Luke ate the wrong kind of mustard. You know? But Luke was influenced by a movie that he thought was going to be nicer, but wasn't. You know, in the end of it all, because Jesus is our payment. When the enemy says, now think about this courtroom drama. The enemy is saying, Luke did, Luke did, Luke did, Luke did this, da, 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 da. And we already know that the enemy of, of our souls has no great favor with the Father. His time is limited, and he's going to burn in damnation for eternity. So he's got a short period of time, and this is what he's doing with it. But then, after he's done with his ranting, Jesus just says, Excuse me, Dad, can I approach the bench? Now that already starts to look better, doesn't it? And then as he approaches the bench, he says, Dad, I paid for it. Take a look. And so the father just opens up the book and says, oh, there's, this is all stained red. That's all I see is red. And then he goes, he did, he did, he did it. And he goes, Jesus is like, paid, 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 paid. How frustrating must that be for the enemy? Because no matter how much he wants to accuse you, Jesus paid for it. Now, that's no license to sin. That's cause to celebrate. Well, if the enemy can't get anywhere with the Father, well, then where does he go next? He goes to you. And he'll accuse you to you, and he'll accuse others to you, because that will work. He'll say, oh, remember when you, oh, you call yourself a Christian, and look what you did. Look at how you thought, and oh, oh, my goodness. Do you really think you're going to go to heaven? And you're like, praise the Lord. Okay, I stand and lift up my hands. The joy of the Lord. There's no victory in that. We've got the victory. <laughs> She's got the victory. Oh, terrible. You know, and, and, and the enemy works that way. And then he'll accuse you, other people to you. Only he'll say, oh, man, let me tell you about Luke. Did you see the way that Luke looked over there? That was because he cares about everyone but you. Or whatever. And again, hypothetical here. You know, but don't go robbing my... You know, I don't have a liquor store. Anyway. <laughs> Jesus died for you to present you weird and to present you blameless. Blameless. That's his job. So the enemy goes, he did, he did, he did. And Jesus goes, well, you can try to blame him. I paid for it. But he couldn't have done that unless you've accepted his gift. And that is why Jesus cannot intercede for sinners. What could Jesus say to the person who's refused him? When the enemy stands before the Father and says, look at this person, did da, 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 and Jesus says, he can't say, I paid. He can say, I paid for it, but they said no to it. But for us, yes. And he's come to present you. Do you know who God calls to intercede for sinners? Us. We're the ones to intercede, but the reason we intercede for sinners is that we would be deployed to their lives. So they could actually remember that there's a choice to be made. Man, if we could show them that courtroom drama, you'd think it would literally scare the hell out of a lot of these people. But unfortunately, some people have been convinced that hell's still an okay place to be. <laughs> like, you've obviously not read the real book. But there's one more. Notice this. An above reproach in sight. Above reproach means unaccusable gets to the point where the enemy can be silenced and he has nothing left to say. 
That's where Jesus, listen, Jesus didn't just die for you so that you can sneak into heaven. Jesus died for you so that all of hell will be silenced at their, accus- at their accusing tongue for you. What an amazing thought. And if that makes you weird, then be weird. I'm not talking about put tinfoil on your head and look for gamma rays. I'm talking about be, you know, be unique for a world that's going to hell. Because in the end of it all, there's a reason why a lifeguard wears a red shirt. It isn't because it's flattering. It's because it's pretty much the one color that no one's going to look like on the beach. Unless, of course, in a, where we came from, unless, of course, you're German and you don't wear sunblock. But other than that, the, the only people wearing red on the, the beach are your lifeguards so that when you go down, you know that's the only guy. He's unique enough. You can find him. And, beloved, listen. The wonder of the present is that you're not just eking out of hell. You're standing next to your Savior with no charge available at you. No charge at all. And that is even more amazing considering we were his enemies when we started this whole thing. The weakness of our past is that we were his enemies. The wonder of the present is not just that he redeemed us and reconciled us by his body and death, but that he presents us innocent and holy and above reproach. If notice it says in his sight if indeed and this is where we wrap it up with the future if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel now listen (coughs) continue the word is a simple word epimene epi means upon mene means to stand or to stay Meno, in this case, Hippomeno. To stay over, stay where we are. There's a story that sticks with my head from a man that's, uh, that was a street fighter in uh, Santa Ana, became a pastor, who's actually had a shotgun and had to kill his family. And they turned on the TV and saw Chuck Smith and gave his life to Christ. It's an amazing story. And they made a movie out of it called Fury to Freedom. The man's name is Raul. He's, he's definitely a, an interesting and fun guy to listen to. One of the reasons is because He's just classic, eh, man, come on, man, you talk, talk like that, man, you know. And so you know, he gets really colorful with his language, not in any kind of cursing kind of way. He's just creative. But he tells a story about how he was surfing once in Huntington. And on his way to surfing, he handed his keys at the lifeguard tower and said he'd be back when he's done. And he started to surf. Um, as he surfed, and he, and he said, that's a good man, I was surfing for a while, man, I did good, man, with a couple hours out there, man, and then I was like, tired, okay, I came in, you know. And he went to the lifeguard tower, and he said, hey, give me my keys. And the lifeguard looked at him and went, I, I don't know what you're talking about, dude, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, yeah, man, let's cut it out, man, give me my keys. And he's walking around looking for his car, and he can't find his car anywhere. He's like, oh, man, that lifeguard, man, he took my car, man, and he like, took it for a ride, man, and now he won't give me my keys, he stole my car, man. You wouldn't expect that from a surfer, but it happened. And and he goes, and this lasts for a couple hours, man, he's, and he's, he just walks around looking for his car, he goes back to the lifeguard tower, maybe they switched lifeguards during the time he was out surfing. He's like, little man, you know, and he's trying to be a pastor. He was, this guy was a really violent street fighter kind of guy, and he was a black belt, not the kind of guy you really want to get angry. Thank the Lord he's saved. And he's just, you know, you know, he doesn't, you know, what, what does he do? Hey, man, come on, man. Give me my keys, man. I don't need my keys. I want to go home, man. Nothing. And finally, it occurs to him after hours of this that he was at the wrong lifeguard tower. That was the problem. See, what had happened is, while he was out surfing, he had no real reference. And so as he was surfing, he wound up drifting south on the Pacific Ocean. So we just wound up in another lifeguard tower. That poor lifeguard, you know? This guy going, can you imagine you're a lifeguard and the guy comes up and says, give me my keys. And you're like, the keys to your what? I don't even know what you're talking about, dude. You know, and so, and I just think about that because it is so subtle. All he did is he followed the current. I mean, he was having a good time and it's a real natural thing to do. He had kind of what he thought was a landmark. And sad enough, there was another landmark very much like that one, enough that he thought that he was in the same place he was when he started. But he drifted. 
And that is the danger of a compromising church. Because what will happen is what we look like is the real life cartel when we're not the life cartel at all. And people think they're in the place where they started. And what they're actually at is they've drifted off to a place where they're never going to find their car. They're never going to find their way home here. And that's, without that surfing metaphor, but I mean, for that burden that has etched in my head is I see what Paul is saying now to these people. Because Paul is looking at a group of people and going, hey, you guys are starting out right. But I've been in the business long enough. I've been in the ministry long enough to know. Listen, guys. I've watched really healthy churches become very unhealthy churches. I watched a Galatian church. The churches, plural, in the region of Galatia, that started out so well, were bewitched and have walked away from the gospel and the one whom the gospel preaches. He goes, I know what it's like to look good in the beginning, but end very poorly. Please don't move. Get to where you belong and stay. Now let me ask you something. Do you remember that time in your life when you were in love with Jesus? I mean, when the name of Jesus would cause your heart to skip a beat. I mean, when the word was something exciting and it wasn't just all information I need to get. When the idea of serving someone was an honor. When you would get up because it was exciting to actually hear the voice of the Lord. When you realized how amazing it was to be saved. I mean, not just, hey, it's cool, thanks bro. But I mean, how amazing it was that God would stoop down and pull you out of your wretched toilet. Because I do. I also know what it's like to drift. I know what it's like to backslide from that to a place where I still look like a great Christian, but I'm not the Christian I'm supposed to be. If I can say it this way, I'm not the Olympic Christian God intended me to be. I'm at this point now, you know. Now I'm at the point where I'll pick up a bat a couple times and a couple games is good enough, but I'm not interested in winning that tournament. But I've never been that kind of person. I've always been a, we're taking this thing and we're taking it hard. And I'm telling you what, that's the kind of church I know the Lord wants. He doesn't want a church where we're all recreational Christians. He wants a church that are people that are blown away at, first of all, the recognition of how weak we were in our past, but also how wondrous it is to be saved in our present. But also the warning is to stay there. But notice what it is that we could move from to be continuing it and to be grounded literally means to have laid a decent foundation that doesn't move. And to be steadfast in the simplest sense means to be immovable. In other words, you've poured concrete and you've laid out your rebar. This house is not moving now. It doesn't matter how beautiful you think the house is on the outside. I'd rather have a goofy looking house on the outside, but one that isn't going to move when the earthquake comes. Because we'll be the only people living when the earthquake comes. And we read that God is going to shake. What is shake? Now, look at what it says. Not moved away from, notice what it says, the hope of the gospel. The rest of this particular verse we'll pick up next week because it picks up with what he says beyond that. But listen, not just moved away from the gospel, moved away from the hope of it. This whole book from this point on will develop the ways that the world, the compromising quote-unquote church, is going to try to encourage you, encourage you to move away from the hope of the gospel but still feel like you're in the gospel. The hope of the gospel is a hope of, of holiness. The hope of the gospel is the hope of a redemption. The hope of the gospel is the hope of a coming king who not only is part of my life, but according to Colossians 3 says that he is our life. He's everything. He's not just a little dictator for it. He is my life. And if he isn't my life, then I'm not the Christian he intends me to be. And if I move away from what the Lord intended, then I have a hopeless gospel. And I see a lot of people out there with a hopeless gospel. It's not good news at all. Be part of the church. Make sure you give. Make sure you do your things. Pay your duties. Put in your time. And at the end of it all, maybe you'll make it into heaven. We're all good great hope is that? I mean, if the great hope is to be rescued from the very filth and mire of this world, shouldn't we be seeing it now? Shouldn't we be seeing that rescue among us? If we're being presented holy and blameless and above reproach now, shouldn't we be seeing that in our own lives now? And just look at, man, don't move. Don't move from this. 
this is where you build your house. This is not just part of your lawn. This is the epicenter of your walk. It's right here. Where Christ was beaten to death. Where we represented standing with Christ. With no blame. I want to warn you. This world's going to say compromise. I want to warn you. The quote-unquote general world, and I'm not telling you we're the church. The church is in mass and the church is in need, of which we are part of. And we'll have our own issues that God's going to want to clean up, I guarantee you. I know I do. But in the end of it all, I at least want to be the person that's mistakes are made while seeking to do my very best. And in it, I don't want to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. I don't want to be a hopeless person. And I can look at the world and I could look at London and say, "How look at how desperate London is. And I talk to Christians all the time that see it as hopeless. Well, good luck with that. I'm like, look at my gospel as a gospel of hope. How about yours? Because it's a gospel of rescue and there's no greater hope than rescue. And it's an eternal rescue. Beloved, we have been rescued by our perfect King. And I'd like to pray for us. I'd like to pray as we now edge our way to a new year that God is going to ravish us. I mean, I don't think, I, I don't want to look back and say, well, those were amazing days, but I was young in the Lord. How, what? I want to look at 2011 and say that I am going to be more in love with Jesus in 2011 than I've ever been. I'm going to be a better father and a better husband and a better pastor and a better friend than I've ever been, not because I have good intentions, but because I have hope in this gospel that that's who he wants to make me. And you too, at least the things that are pertinent for you on those particular titles. Why not? I expect God to do great things with my kids. I expect God to do great things with this house, with this fellowship. And I expect God to steamroll London. And I'm pretty excited to hop on board and see what he does. Why not join me? You pray with me, please. <coughs> Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, first of all, Lord, for the fact of how undeserving I am. As a human being. Undeserving as an alien and an enemy in my mind by my harmful behavior. That's where I started, as does every human being. Regardless of how subtle or obvious our behavior is, we recognize it's harmful if it hurts any human being. I also recognize you've reconciled me, but your reconciling did not come at a cheap price. It came at the, the greatest price, the price of your son, Father, the price of the flesh of his body and through death. And it wasn't just so that I could be taken into heaven, but that I could be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in your sight. What an amazing thought that the enemy would be silenced and that the world would be in wonder. And though I'm absolutely undeserving of your reconciliation. I'm also absolutely impotent to save it myself. But I'm also absolutely in awe and in wonder of how good you are to present me holy and blameless and above reproach in your sight. But I also take seriously the warning I've watched people, Lord, that I thought loved you more than me, that had greater ethic and standard and moral, that were more careful with their mouth, that were more careful with their choices, that seem to be more mature and responsible, that are on the MIA list right now. And it makes me sick to my stomach to think of those people that are now somehow in the casualties, in the graveyard of shipwrecked faith. And here I am, Lord, somehow the dust is, hasn't settled yet, but here I am still standing, and I want to thank you, and I, I can only see it but by your grace. But I don't want to move.
move from this spot. I don't want to move from this spot to a hopeless gospel. A gospel of works, of being good people, a gospel of just having good programs or whatever, Lord. But I want to be a person, Lord, that is utterly in wonder of a God who saved him, loves him, holds him close, and presents himself. So, Lord, if I'm going to be weird, make me your weird, your branch of weird. But may it be for the salvation of others. And I commit this day to you and every one of us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for raising again the Lord. Make 2011 the most amazing year ever. In Jesus' name.